Hi, I'm David Crow, and this is episode 247 of The Infectious Myth. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com. Join the discussion and like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectiousmyth. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on PRN.FM, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes using the phone number 701-719-0990, or you can leave a voicemail at 862-800-6805. If you'd like to make a donation to the expenses of the show, you can send money via PayPal using david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, or on patreon.com or liberatepay.com, we are Infectious Myth, one word. We have a very long and also very interesting interview this week, again on the uh, coronavirus. I asked Dr. James Lyons-Weiler to come back and uh, talk to us about this topic. The last time we talked, which wasn't that long ago, uh, the coronavirus was not yet a thing. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thanks for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. Let's go to the interview now. James Lyons-Weiler has been on this show twice before, the last time very recently in episode 241. I wasn't expecting to have him back so soon, but then coronavirus happened, and he's taken a great interest in this subject. Just to refresh your memory, he's the founder and CEO of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge, also known as IPAC. He's author on 57 peer-reviewed publications, and has written and published three books, one on Ebola, one on cures versus profits, and a third on the environmental and genetic causes of autism, which was the reason I interviewed him for our first meeting. Along with other scientists at IPAC, he performs research in the public interest aimed at finding ways to reduce human suffering using funds donated from the public raised at IPAC educational events. His research program is currently focused on aluminum toxicity, autoimmunity, and the differences in health outcomes between highly vaccinated uh, and unvaccinated children. Welcome back to the show, James. Thank you. Thank you for having me, David. So the coronavirus is believed to be an RNA virus, but not a retrovirus. Is, is that correct? Correct. And there are some theories about where it came from. Uh, one of the original theories was it was it had jumped from animals, perhaps bats, to humans at a seafood market in Wuhan, China. Uh, some people noted that there's a virus lab in Wuhan and thought it was a vaccine experiment gone wrong. Some people thought it was artificially created for nefarious purposes. So what have you concluded from the evidence you've looked at? Okay, so my uh, analysis of the genetic data, specifically focusing on the spike protein, uh, is that I can rule out, I think we can rule out that it's a laboratory origin. I had posed the hypothesis that perhaps the virus was a laboratory-modified virus, and it's not inconceivable that a laboratory-modified virus that was under study for um, characterizing the function of the virus or understanding how it enters the cell, for instance, or for vaccine development, uh, might have escaped the laboratory by accidental infection. It certainly is conceivable. Uh, it's happened four times in the past with SARS. And so looking at the spike protein data, I found a unique motif protein signature that tells us that this virus or vi- a virus that is very much like this with respect to its spike protein existed way back in 2005. The Chinese had uh, published a sequence a genomic sequence of a virus 
that American scientists at the University of North Carolina had downloaded in 2008. And I analyzed both of those data sources, uh, and, and it is very clear that the characteristic protein motif signature that we identified at IPAC that is unique to the Wuhan outbreak strain, it's now a pandemic strain, it's not found in other beta coronaviruses, and it's not found in any genetically modified coronavirus that I've been able to analyze so far. So uh, we can be fairly certain, I think, that at least the spike protein itself, uh, it probably came from a bat, was isolated in 2004, 2005 initially, and it may have been captured and isolated from a bat multiple times. Um, so that's my conclusion. Okay, so um, the coronavirus is named because there are electron microscope photos that show particles with kind of a translucent border uh, with little bumps on them, and those are the spikes that you're referring to that are, are believed to help with infection, I believe. That's the that's correct. So the, the tests that are uh, used to detect this virus are, I mean, from what I've seen, they're, they're mostly what's called RT-PCR, which I think stands for reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction. Um, yes, it uses a polymerase chain reaction, sure. Mm -hmm. Right. And there was a virus lab in Wuhan, and they would have had that capability, presumably, to do that kind of testing. Yes, it's a standard technique that's available in molecular biology labs. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of the issues with um, the disease, I think, is, as far as I can tell, there's not really any distinctive symptoms. Like you can't sort of look at somebody, a doctor can't look at somebody and say, well, you've got fever and a cough, but I can distinguish that, you know, from the coronavirus. It is or isn't based on your symptoms. Is, is that, do you agree with that? It is difficult to distinguish this from many other respiratory virus illnesses, yes. The, the illness caused by the virus is called um, COVID-19. It's a coronavirus infection disease. Mm -hmm. Right. So... What happened at the beginning is a little bit shadowy to me. There, there was a claim, there was a doctor, I, I don't know, um, I can't remember his name, but he's deceased now, who claimed that there was a, a new virus causing severe pneumonia in people. But I believe this was before any testing was done. So on what basis would he have been able to say, you know, what we're seeing in the hospital is different than what we normally see in terms of old people coming in with pneumonia or the influenza or things like that? The early indications of this were that it seemed to be overwhelming in terms of the number of people that were presenting. And this is still the problem with this, with this virus. Um, there, you say that the, the diagnostic characteristics are not unique, but this virus has a long asymptomatic period where people can transmit and it also has a very steep curve compared to like influenza or even SARS and a very high serious illness rate. So the severity of the, you know, if you focus on the initial presentation of symptoms, in 80% of the people it's mild. However, I'm sure this doctor noticed the 15, 16, maybe 20% severity illness, so about 6% of patients um, who require intensive care, as opposed to 0.2% illness in influenza. So when he saw the, the severity of the disease itself as it progressed, and there are people who have mild illness and then it can suddenly uh, turn severe. 
Um, I'm sure that that's what ticked him off and said, wait a minute, this is starting to look like SARS. He's an older, he was an older, he's since died, this doctor, Lee has since about died, but uh, he's old enough to have been uh, in practice in 2003 during the SARS outbreak, and the, the severity and the rate of presentation of new patients reminded him of SARS. Okay, has this ever really been documented? Because I've seen lots of references to it, but I've seen no, you know, uh, analysis of, of what happened and, and what he was seeing that led him to believe that it was something new there without a test. Well, I watched the video, but it was in Chinese, and it's really clear, <laughs> you know, I haven't had time to trans- have it transcribed or look at an English version of it. Okay. But given what we know now of it, I think it's logical to presume that any medical doctor eventually a medical doctor in China would have noticed the amazing, you know, many, many, many fold increased rate of uh, severe illness in the people presenting to the hospital. Well, maybe one day we'll get um, better data on that. Do you, mean, do, you mean, do you mean better data on what the doctor knew or better data on the severity of the illness? Because we know that the, the, the data coming in from all countries is 16 to 20% severe illness. Um, and about six uh, percent ICU intensive care. So we have sufficient data to know that that's the nature of the presentation of COVID-19, which means that since he was in the area and he was seeing patients, that's what he would have seen. So it's possible to logically deduce that that was the most likely the signature that he was reacting to. Well, it would be interesting to see it because you know other doctors were resistant to it. So what was he seeing that other doctors said? you know, you're worrying for nothing. I mean, I, I don't think there was agreement. I don't think everybody at that time was saying, yes, this is uh, a new illness. We need to do something. I think there was a lot of people saying that it wasn't. So it would be nice to have more information about specifically what he saw. Are, okay, are, are there still doctors who don't think that the rates of severity of illness are 16 to 20%? I mean, that's not really what I'm saying. I'm just uh, saying that I would like the information on what was actually happening. I don't know if what he's, um, he saw is actually even included in, in um, the, SAR, in the um, COVID patients. For example, the first patient I've seen documented is December 1st. Was he seeing things before December 1st? Uh, you know, uh, just, just the lack of data. I don't think he said that he saw anything before December 1st. It's not a lack of data, it's just a lack of our collective knowledge. So I don't want to argue from ignorance, but um, the first diagnosis was December 1st, and he, he came out after that date, so we know that. The first patient seemed to belie the infectious theory because nobody in the first patient's family got sick, and nobody in the first patient's family tested positive, and there was no connection between the first patient and any other patient. That's, that's documented. The first documented case, okay. I think you would agree that, that this has caused some panic, the feeling that there was a pending pandemic. And one of the things that happens in a disease epidemic with panic is, is that the treatments uh, that are proposed, a lot of different treatments are proposed. And uh, during SARS, it was mostly high-dose corticosteroids and ribavirin, an antiviral drug, um, that seems to be the same thing happening here. What are your, your comments on the treatments that are being proposed for uh, COVID-19? 
Yeah, so I've done simulations of the outbreak, um, given what I, a couple weeks ago, about a week and a half ago, I think it is now, given the characteristics of the basic reproduction number, which, um, you know, is uh, 2.6, I think. And also, uh, so I did simulations, I think it was about a week and a half ago, and um, I used the characteristics of the virus um, the progression of the disease and the transmission rate of 2.6 patients, uh, new patients being created per, per, per infection, now seems to be an underestimate. But nevertheless, the purpose of my simulations were to determine, you know, what was the most logical public health policy that any nation with this infection uh, should pursue, uh, and how bad could it get, and what would be the effects of treatments, and what would be the effects of social distancing and isolation. Mm -hmm. And my simulations are agnostic to the biology of the virus. They're just, you know, using the characteristics of the transmission rate, what we knew about the recovery rate at the time. And it's pretty clear if you do nothing, of course, this is going to go exponential. It'll pass through the population very quickly uh, over the course of a year or so, and you'll see attendant mortality and attendant uh, morbidity, the serious rates of morbidity that we were just talking about. But the actual um, question of if the effect of treatment uh, is that, you know, you have to treat a huge percentage of the population with antivirals if all you do is treatment. Um, you have to do basically, to have any effect at all, you have to treat over 90, 95% of the po population with effective treatments. And what my simulations um, showed is that through social distancing of self-quarantine if you've been exposed or self-quarantine if you can self-quarantine simply because you're a member of the population and you're taking yourself out of the uh, people who interact with each other and reducing contact among humans, is that we could probably have a massive effect in shutting this down, at least reducing the, the huge numbers of infections in, the, uh, uh, in terms that would overwhelm the medical community with um, a self-quarantine of, you know, 50 or 60 percent combined with a treatment that might only be 50 or 60 percent. So it's, the combination approach is really effective, but it doesn't bring it down to zero. You need a really super effective treatment to bring it down to zero and for, you know, very, very strict um, quarantine. I was, I was impressed by the model telling me that there would be a continuation, a long-term continuation of a low rate of transmission and infection with ongoing, the model assumes, ongoing 60% non-sustainable you know, quarantine, we can't change our culture so that 60% of the population in any country is under quarantine permanently. So what we really have to do is look at this as an opportunity to slow down the rate of the viral transmission so that we don't get, you know, thousands of cases in medical um, facilities that will overwhelm the medical facilities and put the medical personnel, the healthcare personnel, at increased risk of infection. And I just recently learned that the data coming out of uh, countries that have this infection, where the frontliners are being infected, that the you know the serious illness rate and the intensive care unit rate of, of 16 or 16 to 20 or 6 percent intensive care unit requirement uh, in the ICU is being experienced by frontline healthcare workers as well. And so that's very, very, very serious. If if the frontline healthcare workers become sick on a rolling basis and they're not able to care for those people that need intensive care, then we're going to see in-home self-treatment. We're going to see people ordering, you know, oxygen generators because at the end stage, 
of this where, you know, you're going to need oxygen support. The medical community may not be able to be responsive to the large number. And so that's why I'm arguing for social distancing now before we're at large numbers where people are not touching, they're not holding hands, you know, shaking hands, they're not hugging and kissing for greetings. I'm arguing for the cancellation of non-essential group meetings, you know, people I'm saying should not go to exercise class. Maybe we should have distance worshiping and things like that. Um, people should carry around antiviral wipes and or bleach cloths in a in a plastic bag so they can wipe down the surfaces that they use in public, just like you're if you're at the gym. And it should become a social norm whereby whether you're infected or whether you know you're infected or not, if you have symptoms or not, that's the problem. It has a very very long asymptomatic period, the people should basically take care of the public places where they touch, uh, that where they use. And we really don't know yet if it's aerosolized. We know that the transmission rate is probably higher than 2.6. It's more along the lines of 3 to 3.5 to 3.8, uh, the most recent estimates. Um, and unfortunately, the death rate appears to be now um, at, you know, as high as 2, two or 3 percent, uh, 2.9 to 2.6 to 3 percent. So we're looking at a very serious outbreak that we still have a short window of, our, of time in the United States and Canada and other countries uh, where we can collectively, you know, reduce the rate of spread of this so that the medical community has time to prepare to get the right kind of uh, personal protective gear in place, to get the protocols. You seem to be saying that it, in, inevitably it will go through the entire population. Yeah, I think the, I think the more sophisticated models are... are and the, other experts are saying by the end of the year it should have gone through 40 to 60 percent of the population if we do nothing. If we just go about our daily lives and we don't change our social distancing, there's a definite age-related risk of mortality. The older you are, the more likely you are to die. There's a series of, uh, um, of conditions that if you have them, like cardiovascular disease and so on, pre-existing lung conditions, you're more likely to die. And if you're male, you're more likely to die. And so okay. in terms of, of morbidity, these people uh, are, are a special risk, and they should isolate now just to save their own lives and to help save, reduce the risk of transmission to save their own lives. I don't think anybody should be in a panic, but we should be prepared and we should collectively pull together to reduce the rate of transmission. Okay, There's so no go ahead. So in in China, um, you kind of alluded to this. The average age is is fifty or sixty, uh, and China is a young population, so it's really skewed towards older people. Fifty uh, percent of people in one survey in China had pre-existing health conditions, some of which you you mentioned. Large number of pre-existing health conditions. I was asking you about the antiviral drugs. The list I've put together, and I, I'm sure there's more that are under consideration, is yeah. oseltamivir, which is a flu drug. Gancyclovir was antiviral. I don't know exactly. Uh, I think it's used for cytomegalovirus. I don't know what else it's used for. Lopinavir and ritonavir, which are HIV drugs. Remdesivir, which is an Ebola drug. And avigan-favipiravir, which is a flu drug I've never heard before. None of them are specific for the coronavirus. I mean, does it make sense to use antivirals that are, by nature, quite toxic on an older and sicker population? You know, is it going to help, no, no, or is it just going to kill no, people? not necessarily. It, it, it makes sense to encourage the, 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 the social distancing and isolation of the older population, but I think that our government should be encouraging 
the use of antivirals prophylactically by healthcare workers and by people who have to, by the nature of their job, you know, be in public and interact with physically a large number of people. The ones that I'm familiar with are the remdesivir that you mentioned and chloroquine. There's a study on my blog, jameslinesweiler.com. Uh, uh, there's a 20-point, 20 21-point list of things that, that you don't yet know about but need to know about the novel coronavirus. Remdesivir and chloroquine effectively inhibit the recently emerged novel coronavirus. Disulfiram can inhibit MERS and how, SARS coronavirus. How do you say and that remdesivir in, inhibits? Is this in the test tube? It inhibits probably in the test tube. If, I, if you look at the study, it's probably, um, it, yeah, it's in vitro. So that means in, in living, they're probably tested in animals. So, because uh, remdesivir was um, uh, uh, in used... Vitro. No, I'm sorry, in vitro is in, in, in uh, test tube. In, in, in glass, in, like, yes. cell lines, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So remdesivir was used on, on one patient in the United States, with you know, which the doctor said it seemed to help. But um, another doctor said there's no way that you can tell from, from one case. There's no comparison. And the doctor said it's years before you actually know the effectiveness, safety profile of a drug like this. Oh, so. absolutely. And, and here's the thing. We have a choice to make, right, whether we want to um, try to use these drugs to shut down the transmission of, uh, you know, the viremia in individuals and the severity of their illness, um, or do we want to say, wait and find out what happens if we don't? And the expert consensus is that chloroquine phosphate is effective, and the Chinese are doing it, and they're having good, good results with it. Selenium, there's nutrient deficiencies that we know, micronutrient deficiencies like selenium. There's an active component of licorice root called uh, glyrizin that um, is available. You don't need a prescription to get it, but it... Uh, it helps shut down the replication of the SARS-associated coronavirus. And my point is, not that we should show, throw away translational research, okay, or, or the ethics of doing and conducting research. This isn't research. This is public health emergency that the World Health Organization has declared a public health emergency. And I was one of the first voices to say, quarantine's not going to do it, especially in Western countries, where it seems to be that the political consideration is the effect on the short-term, you know, economics of the stock market. Uh, well, and so that's, that's not my concern, but we know N-acetylcysteine helps and spirulina and high-dose glucosamine to shut down RNA viruses. So I think it's reasonable to say doing something is better than doing nothing, even if they're moderately effective. And my simulations show that you could have a treatment that you only use on 60% of the population and quarantine only 60% of the, of the population, and that has a massive, massive effect. So it's not as though every drug has to be 100% effective, nor is it as if you have to use the drug on the entire population. But using so uh, terms antivirals on 60% of the population, a lot of them cause liver failure and kidney failure, and they, they have fatal side effects. Well, yeah, you're definitely going to want to look after have, making sure the patients have proper liver support. And any of the potential side effects that are known should be spelled out for each patient, and they should be provided with informed consent, as it's done for every medical procedure. So I'm not saying that we throw the book away on ethics. I'm saying mathematically, if we find effective treatments, and if we try uh, experimental treatments, that... The science seems to be pointing that it could help shut down the rate of transmission. 
one effective treatment in one patient could prevent thousands of cases. And so it, it's just math. It's a very simple, simple and straightforward well, mathematics. I, now, I, this isn't like a live virus vaccine. A live virus vaccine, we found out now, we found out in the most recent years, they don't prevent the transmission. They reduce the symptoms. But they don't prevent the transmission. And the nice thing about antivirals is that they seem to be able to uh, be, be effective in shutting down cellular entry, which should lead to lower viremia and, 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 and transmission. So, you know, that pertussis is a bacterium, but the pertussis, the acellular pertussis vaccine is called a failed vaccine. It doesn't prevent transmission. You get a culture in your throat and you cough, and you're, you're spreading it around in all the medical personnel and the parents and the grandparents that get the pertussis vaccine are at a higher risk of lifetime acquiring another mm-hmm. another infection. So uh, um, there's, something, there's something I want to talk about for a minute, though, about the, the risk of severe illness and mortality. Mm-hmm. And it, initially, I was thinking, you know, I, I had a hypothesis that perhaps the, there's something special about the Wuhan province population, that they were at increased risk of severe illness and mortality, either because they were exposed to a spike protein through a large, you know, cryptic vaccination program that was started that we don't know about, or through ambient exposure to the SARS protein through, you know, the um, infected meats that they do do eat in the market and so on, and prepare and butcher, or perhaps from the last SARS outbreak. And so I'm concerned, like in the city of Toronto, there was a very high, a large number of people there. And I think that all healthcare workers, all public health officials should be tracking people and finding people who had past exposure to SARS because we know from the animal vaccine studies, if you are confronted, if your immune system is confronted with a spike protein from SARS and you're immunized against or you're vaccinated against it, and then you're infect, the animal is infected with the SARS virus again, but there's an unacceptable high mortality rate. And we know this. Now, I know that the, the vaccines that are being considered and have been under consideration as late as 2017 for uh, SARS took away parts of the spike protein and only used part of the spike protein, and they, they were hoping for better efficacy on the better safety profile. But, you know, there are people that we, we have good re- scientific reason to predict that they might be at highest risk, and that may explain the age-related risk as well, that the older people have previously been exposed to SARS, and now they're being exposed to SARS-CoV-2, um, and this may explain the higher risk of mortality. There's very virtually no mortality and no serious illness in children, probably because this is their first exposure. So that's what I think the dynamics or the etiology of the, of the you know, lifetime exposure to SARS and MERS and the coronaviruses like, uh, like this novel coronavirus might, might, might entail. I'd, I'd like to move a little bit towards um, testing. There was a New York Times article recently where public health officials outside Lombardy, Lombardy is the northern region of Italy where most of the cases have been found, are criticizing the public health officials in Lombardy for testing asymptomatic people. And they're saying that they're making the epidemic much bigger. What's your comment on that? By testing asymptomatic people, they're making the epidemic larger? Yes. So they are saying they should stop testing asymptomatic people. Uh, maybe explain a, a little bit. So I, I assume that what's happening is somebody goes to the hospital with, you know, fever, cough, 
they do an x-ray, there's lung problems, uh, so they do a coronavirus test and they're positive. And then the public health officials find their son, their daughter, their wife, their cousin, whatever people that they hang around with, and test all of those people even though they're all healthy. And so that's what um, uh, the public health officials outside Lombardy are saying should not be done. Because you said that they're increasing the size of the problem by yes. testing them? Yes, they, by by artificially amplifying the number of false positives, that's what you're talking about. Uh, well, they they never. I've never seen the word false positive mentioned. Maybe that's they're concerned. Okay, so let's talk about the test. The test is not exact. It's not perfect. There were definitely a number of false positives in every state that tried the CDC's test. The CDC insisted on using their own test for this entire thing for the entire country. Uh, instead of just allowing people who know to make such tests as well as they do, make their own test. The way that the PCR test works is that there's, in the CDC's case, I managed to get a hold of the primer probe sets. These are little snippets, 21 bases of nucleotides, that match the coronavirus sequence between a region that is characteristic and unique, supposed to be unique to that particular coronavirus, mm. And through, through an amplification process, it's an exponential chemical reaction, that, that particular segment is reproduced millions of times. You can get 50 million, 100 million copies in the test tube. And they, they have 12 pairs of these, of these probes, so there should be 12 diag, you know, diagnostic indicators in each test tube. The problem is when I requested the primers, and when I finally got them, there was some delay on it. I analyzed the primers to see if they were specific to the, this particular coronavirus, and they're not. It looks like they would amplify other coronaviruses that might be around, and it also looks like they might amplify human genes. And there's, the problem with that is, is not just a false positive rate, but through amplification of human genes that might be present in a sample, that will be present in a sample from a human being, you could actually have a, a, a make the reaction so complex that it fails, and therefore it could lead to a false negative. And this was what happened, I think, on the Princess cruise ship, where there were people that were tested using the CDC's test. The test came back negative. They let them go, as well as the person that came from Wuhan into Texas. They tested negative. They let them go. This one woman in Texas went out to the mall and was hung, hanging around with people, eating at the mall and shopping. And because the test is not 100% or 99% specific to the coronavirus, you might get a false positive. Right. But the, in the worst-case scenario, which is not bad, you just say, hey, you got to be isolated, which is not it's only hurting one person. But a false negative of this test is worse than having no test at all. Because if you don't know the status of the person, you're going to say, go home, self-isolate. And we need large numbers of self-isolation anyway to reduce the rate of transmission. So the CDC's test, in my opinion, is completely irrelevant, and it's actually harming the process. They, they, they shouldn't test, but I'm not so concerned about the false positives. The false positives, you tell a person, go home, stay home for two or three weeks, fine. That person's not out there. Well, I can, around. I, I can... Infected. I, I'm not so sure that that's... that it's... that, that there's no problems with false um, positives. I didn't say there's no problem. I said I'm less concerned about okay. false positive. There's but, a problem for that one person. 
Well, but let me give some other that, problems. But, but, but we're trying to get to a point, in my view, we're trying to get to a point where we're reducing contact between people anyway. And that person, by just by going to a medical facility and giving a sample, has a very high risk of becoming infected, I think. Well, um, if the person who has a false positive is sick, it's highly unlikely to be recognized as a false positive. I mean, if somebody's asymptomatic, has had no contact with other people, you might say, well, this looks like a false positive. But, you know, you can have, you can have the symptoms, the same symptoms for many other different reasons. So just because you're sick, it doesn't mean that a positive result is true. And in that you're case... Exactly, you're, you're exactly right. And it's a smart thing that you said. And, and I'm an expert in diagnostic uh, pathology. And the way that we do that is that we look at the combined probability of having an illness if you have, say, the symptoms that are characteristic and a test um, and a fever and so on. And, and there's ways of doing this mathematically. The problem is that the CDC is, is put out a very blunted instrument. Mm-hmm. And the, the instrument itself is extremely inaccurate to the point where it's harming the process. It is worse to have a false negative, in my view, than to have a false positive by far, because you've given someone the confidence, and you've given all the people around them the confidence that it's okay, I can hold your hand, you're, you're negative. We just said earlier that it's likely that by the end of the year, 60 to 80% of the people in the world are probably going to be infected with this virus, and that means that that person's going out into the world, if they're given a false negative, they're going to transmit it, if they're infected, we know that. They have a very long asymptomatic period of 5 to 30 days. And we also know that if they're actually negative and they're given a false positive, that their social isolation is only going to help reduce the rate of transmission later on. And well, it will actually protect them from future infection. And so there's, there's arguments to be made both sides, but I think the test is a big distraction. And now, it's a moneymaker for the CDC. We should talk about that, too. Yeah, well, the CDC is, is definitely motivated by money. It's always crying poverty, but it's a multi-billion dollar organization. Um, but what the problems you've described for the CDC test, they're not you know, unique to the CDC. I mean, is there any guarantee that there's not other tests out there that don't have similar problems? They're not unique to the CDC, but if you're talking about, like, influenza or even SARS, you know, the serious illness rate from influenza is 0.2%. It's not 20%. It's a horse of a completely different color. Uh, Right, but what I'm saying is that you could have other test kits that are being used that have similar problems with unreliable results. Well, we, we, we certainly do, and the way that diagnostic pathology should address that is using them in combination with other say, biomarkers or risk factors. And, you know, proper diagnosis is, is, is complex. The CDC is acting as though their test, because it's based on nucleotides, it's, you know, that, that, it's, that by definition is going to have this high accuracy. And they, they once again have failed at making sure that their test is accurate. And so just because other tests are, are equally bad, well, if it's a test for the common cold, yeah, it can be equally bad, no big deal. But if it's a test for SARS-2 coronavirus, we're looking at a, make, a contribution to a, 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 their test could expedite the spreading of, a vi- of this particular virus. If um, you're not concerned about this particular virus, okay, it's just like anything else. But given what I've seen, I'm concerned about this particular virus. 
Um, about a, almost a month ago, the South China Morning Post, Hong Kong's biggest newspaper, quoted Wang Chen, president of the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, as saying the accuracy rate of the test is only 30 to 50 percent. Uh, he said that on uh, CCTV, Chinese national television. I, I, I wouldn't have any. He would know better than I would, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, there is a, a paper that was published in Lancet, I think in January, about a family cluster. And uh, in that, there was um, a woman who was kind of central to the cluster. She had the illness, the same illness as everybody else. But when they tested her, they tested her 18 times. They used different samples, they used different tests, and every sure. test was negative. And uh, they then stated that because of the epidemiological connection, we believe that she is infected. Uh -huh. do, what do you think about that logic? We don't understand the nature of this virus. There's some idea that, you know, let's talk about terminology, David. The, the, the idea that this virus might become endemic to the population is one thing. The idea that this virus might become like herpes, where it becomes consistently expressed by our genome under certain conditions, is another altogether. And so we don't yet know if this is something that's going to go away like SARS went away because of, you know, aggressive treatment and aggressive social isolation, social distancing. We have no idea about the ultimate outcome here. But I know that if you have an unreliable test, and that test tends to show negative or a positive in a certain individual, that test is then going to be very likely to show the same false result in the future with the same person. And so it's ridiculous that the CDC is now requiring two negatives Okay, before they'll let a person go. The China's doing That's the same ridiculous. thing. It's the, it's the same test with the same person, the same <laughs> genetic makeup. If they have a particular genetic makeup that causes the test to be less accurate in them, or if they have a resident other type of coronavirus infection, it, you wait a week and you test them again, it's ridiculous. Insanity. So, no, I, I think testing is a mess. It's an absolute mess. Okay. Uh, I think there's a saying that insanity is, is uh, repeating the same thing and expecting different results. Um, China also requires two negative tests before letting people go. But let me, let me talk about that. In, in one, uh, I think in Guangzhou, Guangdong in uh, China, they said that the standard was your symptoms have to have abated. I don't know if they had to completely go, but you had to be on the mend. And you had to have two negative tests, and I think they had to be 24 hours apart, and they found that about 14% of people, like on a checkup, presumably a week or two later, were testing positive again, but had no symptoms. So what, what do you think is the explanation for that? I think that if they continue these messy practices, we're going to get to the point where there's certainly not going to be enough tests. Um, we're going to get to the point where testing becomes irrelevant because the societal impacts are going to be so grave. Listen, if I'm a healthcare worker and I have to test 100 patients, you know, if I have to test one patient, that's one thing. I put on my PPG and so on. But I have to test 100 patients, my, I've just increased my risk 100-fold of something going wrong and me becoming infected by somebody in that, in that group. Also, I've just collected, I've also just collected 100 people in one location, some mm -hmm. of whom are infected. I can't stress this enough. We're not even thinking about social distancing when it comes to, to these procedures. They should have an in-home test kit that's been 
you know, validated and is very, very accurate. And the CDC has the power to say, no, 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 we have FDA approval. This is emergency FDA approval, and you have to use a CDC test. It's the stupidest move. It's a very bad misstep. There should be free and open market competition for the most accurate test. An in-home test is absolutely necessary. And, you know, I hope that your interview gets to the President of the United States because he can, he can shut this nonsense down with one uh, signing statement. Well, he's, he's definitely taken an interest in that. Um, one thing I've noticed is that the testing strategy in places like Japan, South Korea, Italy, I've heard Switzerland as well, is basically encouraging people to go to the hospital if they have compatible symptoms, which, of course, in the majority of cases are not coronavirus. It's just the influenza or some other cause of pneumonia. Those are places that have had, not surprisingly, a huge number of positive results, and uh, uh, it appears like there's a big epidemic. Whereas in the United States and Canada, the criticism has been, well, I, I don't know if in Canada, but the United States, there's been a lot of criticism. There's not enough testing going on. But what if there was a lot of testing and they found a thousand cases? The whole country would shut down. Well, listen, we're talking about a hypothetical that's going to become a reality here anyway. We're going to have a thousand cases, you know, either in a few days or next week or in a few weeks. So this is inevitable, and that's my point. Every action that's taken should put social distancing first. Every action with the finances, the billions of dollars, President Trump said the other day, basically in a public argument, you know, with, with health officials, a, a very public uh, argument where they were saying that, you know, the vaccine won't be ready in a year. And he's like, well, we can come out with treatments, can't we? And people are making fun of it. But it's the right strategy. The right strategy is to try treatments that might work to add to the value of social isolation. And we can do another interview in a month, and I hope I'm wrong. I I'm hope there's not 10,000 cases in the United States next month. But my understanding of what's been happening in all the other countries is that the virus doesn't check its passport at the border and say, oh, the rules in the United States are different because these people are American citizens. Let me, ask you, let me ask you about some of the cases. I've been following a significant number of cases. I mean, not significant in terms of the overall number, but in many cases not information available. Of, of what I might call impossible cases. So, for example, in San Marino, which is uh, like a little country within a country of Italy, they found an 88-year-old man positive. He's not recently traveled abroad, if ever, ever. He's not traveled to Lombardy, which is the area of Italy with the other cases. He's not had any contact with any other cases. How would you, first of all, how would you explain his positive test? Well, this virus is known to be able to be transmitted through what are called fomites. So if he, he, like every other human being on the planet, has to use a door handle to open up a door handle. He may have gone shopping and used a keypad that was the person ahead of you in line. Even People say, I didn't have any contact, but they don't know who they've been in contact with through fomites. So the virus has a very long persistence on it, and that's why I'm saying we all need to clean the public spaces that we use. Just like at the gym, if you use a bench, you're supposed to clean it off. All right, then it should become a new cultural norm that it's impolite to use something in public, like a subway uh, a railing or, or strap on a subway or a seat on a subway, without wiping it off when you're done. But that's not this should be the this harmless. should be the new norm for the next two or three months. So the medical community has time to get 
their 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 affairs in order to be to be able to handle ten thousand, forty thousand cases. Uh, that that's not a harmless practice, though. I mean, on I think on your Twitter feed or Facebook feed, you had a a paper or article saying that children who were explain who were exposed to cleaning products when young had a higher rate of uh, I think asthma. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so we're 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 going to we're going to increase dramatically increase the exposure of people to chemical disinfectants, which is going to have. Uh, which is going to increase rates of cancer and uh, various other health problems. I mean, do we get to a point where the cure is worse than the disease? It's possible. It's an interesting point, David. But if you also look at what they're doing right now in China and South Korea, they have armies of people spraying down public places. They're clouding entire cities. The animals are dropping out of the trees. What I'm saying is that if we collectively do this now, you take out a Ziploc bag, you take out your wipe, and you wipe off the keypad before and after you use it, you're not affecting children, you're affecting yourself. And further, if we do this, collectively disinfect the spaces that we all touch, we will see a reduction in the rate of transmission of all other kinds of viruses as well, like the influenza virus. So okay. we should see a mass reduction, and that reduction in uh, death and, and, and serious uh, morbidity from other viruses. And so there's always a trade-off. I don't have a silver, uh, um, you know, I don't have a, a, a crystal ball here. But what I do have is knowledge that if we don't do everything that we can do to shut down the rate of transmission, that we're going to see a much, much higher mortality rate uh, as a result of the medical infrastructure shutting down. So you... that's, the, that's the nightmare situation, and that's why China had to do what some call draconian measures. And I think we need to take a look at the fact that China did the world a favor. They, they, they bought us very precious time by, by doing the draconian. They stopped the travel. We stopped travel. They locked people in their houses and so on. And, and these are measures that we might actually come to here. But they well, bought us precious time so that we may not have to do that. Another because thing, we could get to a state where we could handle the the high number of cases medically, but I don't I don't know that that's even possible. So. I think one of the things that ends the, ended the SARS epidemic was the the definition. Um, basically, the definition of SARS, which um, was you needed a a symptom, uh, you needed an epidemiological connection, and you needed a positive test. If you didn't have the first two, they didn't do the test. So basically, once everybody was in quarantine, they stopped testing for SARS. And therefore, the epidemic disappeared, even though there may have been people out there who would have tested positive. And in early January, uh, early February, I guess, the Chinese changed the definition because originally, a positive test, you didn't need symptoms and you didn't need an epidemiological connection. But in early February, the <coughs> Chinese said, if you don't have an epidemiological connection and you don't have a symptom, we're not going to test you and you're not going to count as a case, which dramatically reduced the number of cases in China. It was not a, uh, it was it was not that there were less people out there who were positive, they were doing less testing. So do you have evidence that there's not less people out there who are positive? Well, I, I'm pretty sure that if they had done, taken the strategy of Japan and South Korea, in Italy and test everybody who shows up at the, um, the emergency room, and then if anybody tests positive, go test their family, that they would have still had thousands more cases. 
And yet, there's no massive increase of illness in China, right, well, right now. There, but, 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 but do you have any data of SARS now that in, these, in say, in Canada, where they stopped testing? Now, well, not just, you know, not just an inference or a hypothesis. Do you, you know, no. there is diagnostic substitution. There's no doubt about it. There's very, very sloppy diagnostics over influenza vaccine. I'm um, oh, sorry, over influenza diagnosis. If it looks like the flu, if it sounds like the flu, we're going to call it the flu, and they end up giving people vaccination for influenza when we know it could be any number of other respiratory viruses. Uh, Of course. My point is is, none of those respiratory viruses have 20% more uh, serious illness rate. None of them have 6% intensive care use. And so regardless of what has happened in the past, you're going to know with this whether or not there's still positive people out there. You see what I'm saying? The SARS was mild enough. The influenza is mild enough. Right? Other coronaviruses are mild enough that, okay, it kind of went away. We're not that worried about it, whatever. Okay? This is not a mild coronavirus. And so there, there's no way that we can just say, oh, it went away all of a sudden. It's not going to be like Ebola, where it just went away all of a sudden, and they stopped reporting. They cannot stop reporting on this because the people who are doing the reporting are at 40 to 60% risk of infection, and those who are infected are then at 20% risk of serious illness. You're not going to be able to make that go away with diagnostic substitution. Um, okay, so my last question, we've, we've had quite a bit of concern about the test, false positive, false negatives. Has the coronavirus been purified? Yes. And what's the paper that did that? I'll send the paper to you. Um, there's a person who I uh, happened to, I'm one, I'm one degree of separation away uh, through family, ironically, uh, of a person who isolated and, and did the crystallography of, of the spike protein. So I, the, the, I, I the virus about... itself is an RNA virus. It's very simple and elementary. It's mm. been purified many times in the laboratory. You can download the sequence and you can reconstruct the virus in the lab. Uh, and I know where you're going with this, Dave. Here's what I want to say. I can go right now to NCBI PubMed. It's a public database. I can download SARS. I can download this coronavirus. And if I have the right laboratory, I can synthetically construct the RNA with a machine that creates nucleotide sequences. And that mm. RNA will have the biological features of the virus. Sure. Okay. Sure. It, you've, you've, you're talking about the RNA. I'm talking about purifying the whole virus the protein coat, everything. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll look forward to that paper. I'll send you an email um, to make sure that I, I get that. I've only seen one, and it's not even published yet, an article, I think this is my last question, one article claiming an animal model where they injected some cell culture material into the nose of mice and uh, produced pneumonia. D- uh, d- are you aware of any other... I mean, I don't know. You're probably aware of this paper. Are you aware of other there are, animal models? Not, not, not for this coronavirus, but certainly for SARS. There's over, um, you know, a, a decade and a half of molecular biology research of animal models. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 the UNC laboratory that downloaded the sequence, the Chinese sequence that was published in 2005, uh, modified the virus and made a chimeric virus so that it could infect mouse tissue. So then the mice, all right, and so when I tell you about the vaccine studies where you're vaccinating against uh, the SARS coronavirus with 
uh, the spike protein, that spike protein could be either an attenuated virus, unlikely because that's RNA, or a spike protein product that's, that's you know, put into, um, the, the spike protein gene can be put into yeast and so on, and so you can generate plenty of spike protein. And these, these viruses, these vaccines then are given to the mice, and then the mice are challenged with the wild-type SARS. And mm -hmm. so, you know, for, for them to be able to grow this, this virus in the lab to isolate the protein to, uh, to sufficient quantities to create a, a vaccine with it tells me that, yes, the, the, the virus is quite real. The title of the paper, so your listeners don't have to wait for emails, is Atomic Level Structure of the Spike Protein of the Viruses that Causes COVID-19, and it's from the McClellan Lab at the University of Texas, Austin. Okay, I'll see if I can find that on PubMed. Um, is there anything else? We, we've talked about a lot of uh, different things, and I really appreciate um, you giving your opinions on, on so many different aspects of this global uh, disaster. Um, is there anything that we've missed that you really want to get out before uh, we close? Yeah, there are two things. The first is that there's a reason why we don't have a SARS vaccine right now. The reason why we don't have the SARS vaccine is because the vaccine safety studies at the animal level showed too high mortality for the, for the translation to go forward. Okay, The medical community thinks that we don't have a SARS vaccine because, oh, well, it turned out that the SARS managed, the, the, it turned out that we could manage it with you know, social isolation and with treatments. In reality, if you vaccinate with a spike protein, you're, you're setting yourself up, I believe, you're setting yourself up, anyone as an animal or a human, setting yourself up for serious, uh, you know, acute respiratory distress and, and high morbidity and high mortality in the future from another coronavirus infection. Mm -hmm. We know that this virus can infect you again once you've cleared it. It has a very high mutation rate. The other thing that I'd like to say is that for the people who think that this is some kind of um, attempt by, you know, um, organizations, globalists, and these kinds of messages to try to, to take control of the population and so on, yep. I, I, I happen to know that the people that were arrested in Wuhan and Beijing for breaking, uh, they, were, they were arrested by the police because they had broken quarantine, in some cases many times. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm not putting out a threat. I don't work for the government. I'm an independent research institute. I don't answer to any government agency except for, for regulatory compliance, and I only uh, survive on donations from the public to do the right. research that I do. If you want to enjoy the comfort of your home during your quarantine, don't break your quarantine if you're quarantined. It's very important that you understand that the reason why you're quarantining is to protect yourself from being infected and to stop yourself from becoming a vector agent to transmit it to other people, right? And, and so it may be uncomfortable, it may be inconvenient and so on, but we, I, I think we need to start doing distance education from schools now. I think all workplaces should tell their employees, if you can do your job from home, go home, work from home. Right. I think workplaces need to start cross-training across essential operations in case somebody in the workplace gets sick. We, we can't wait for the government to say, okay, this is serious, because if we do this now, then we will have a chance of getting this not under control, but extending the runway enough for the medical community to get their affairs in order so that they can handle the thousands of cases that are coming. I'm not holding out for a miracle cure. I know about the high-dose vitamin C. I know about the Chinese family where the grandmother was very sickly. She had many comorbid conditions. 
and they all took vitamin C, and she recovered. Okay, so I, what we what we don't understand is is that is that universal. So let, let's take a look at this mathematically, logically. That prepare, but don't panic. And I thank you for having me on your show, David. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And goodbye. You're welcome. There were a couple of points in this interview that require clarification. After being unable to locate the paper that Dr. Lyons Weiler mentioned about purification, I emailed him. He asked me what I meant by purification. I said simply separating the entire virus particles, RNA wrapped in protein, from all other organic materials such as cell cultures. He has not got back to me, so I will maintain my position that the RNA might be interesting, but it's premature to call it viral. Regarding Dr. Li Wenliang, we shared some erroneous information because I didn't properly prepare for this question. His warning was not made until December 30th, well after December 1st, uh, uh, which was the first patient, so that was my mistake. On the other hand, this doctor who warned about coronavirus and then apparently died of it was only 34 in 2020 when he died, so would have been about 17 in 2003 during the SARS epidemic, so could not have been in practice then and could not have had any experience with SARS. Dr. Lyons-Weiler also referred to a many, many fold increase in severely ill patients that Dr. Lee must have seen, but his document only mentioned that seven patients were in quarantine with a respiratory disease that resembles SARS. It's not clear what that means, because SARS cases were based on a single respiratory symptom, a one-degree temperature rise above normal, etc. He also stated that Dr. Lee was probably seeing patients, but Dr. Lee was an ophthalmologist, so this seems unlikely. I imagine somebody with pneumonia or severe influenza would probably cancel an eye appointment and not go see their doctor. Personally, based on what I know, I can see why other doctors would be skeptical, and I think they would have been skeptical if this had happened in the U.S. or Europe. Thank you for listening to episode 247 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, like us at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, follow us on Twitter Instagram at infectiousmyth, commit to monthly donations of any amount to infectiousmyth on patreon.com or liberapay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye.